You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, I want to thank you again for the feast you've given us this week in spiritual things. We are not yet done. Uh, There's a message this morning and throughout the day and throughout the weekend, and we trust that your spirit will refresh your people with those drops of rain of the Holy Spirit while we're here. And Father, I pray for a continual increasing outpouring of your spirit upon your people. We ask for the latter rain because you've told us to pray for the latter rain in the time of the latter rain in the book of Zechariah. And Lord, we thank you that we can ask and you've given the spirit of God freely. Now we ask that you would guide our understanding this morning as we study together. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I have to say something else this morning. I, they're, they're, you know, preaching is a bittersweet job. And what I mean is, somebody asked me yesterday afterwards, can you ever talk without yelling? <laughs> you know, it's funny because when we do talking points. I've got, we get emails from people all the time, and, and they, they, they regularly, we got the question, why does Pastor Mark talk so soft? We can hear Cameron, but we can't hear him. And so Cameron, and this is after Cameron in the audio levels, because his voice booms more than mine does. So he's got to lift up the audio levels on every one of the talking points, and still we get that. Then I get here, and I'm talking too loud, or too fast, or what. So this is what you get. You ever hear WYSIWYG? What you see is what you get. Um, It's funny, Pastor Andy M., who is, Andy is our communications director, and we did an Emmanuel training, and he was coming in to take pictures, and he said, Pastor Howard, he said, it's hard to get a good picture of you because you're always scowling when you preach. I said, Andy, that's because I'm old and I can't see anything anymore. So I'm not mad at you, seriously. But I just can't hardly see anything, even with the glasses. So people say, oh, get LASIK. You know, the doctor says, you're a perfect candidate for LASIK. Right, and I still have to wear reading glasses. What good does that do? Anyway, maybe you, maybe you relate to that. But this morning, and sometimes I'm just plain excited about stuff. I just, this is intense stuff, so... Just for whatever that's worth. Now, this week, we've really been trying to break down this passage in early writings, page 63, and our pioneer view of the present truth. I'm going to read it again. Early writings, page 63. There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. Such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, I want to pause there and, 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 and share something I haven't shared this week. I want you to think about these subjects because it, it can seem like they're scattered. But we've already talked about the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. What does that do to the 2300 days? The only sanctuary that exists at the end of the 2300 days is the heavenly sanctuary. So when we talk about, and, and, and I've said this, but I really want to emphasize this. When we're talking about the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, what we're talking about is the present work of Christ. We are, the, the whole, and, and so now, now when you come to the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, where else do we find that phrase in Scripture? Revelation 14, verse 12. It is the conclusion of what? The three angels' messages. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. How do the three angels' messages start? What is the first angel's message? Fear God and glory to him because the what? 
hour of his judgment has come. When did it come? It came in 1844. How do we know it? The sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. So this is not a bundle of different scattered things. What we're being told is that present truth, according to the prophecies, points us forward to the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, and that the three angels' messages are precisely for that very purpose of pointing people to the work of Jesus. You don't believe me? I'm going to go, well, well uh, let me get through this statement. So notice, such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement, because we see the prophetic placement for things, and show what our present position is, because we know presently Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary, and we've got that message to give. She continues, to establish the faith of the doubting and give certainty to the glorious future. It's interesting to me how many Seventh-day Adventists, and it, we have to own it the way it's presented sometimes, have allowed the concept of the investigative judgment to, to take away their hope for the glorious future when it is really the most powerful or, or reason for the hope of the glorious future because it's talking about the work of Jesus in the sanctuary above, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning. So these topics, they give us, they establish the faith of, faith of the doubting, they give certainty to the glorious future. She continues, I have frequently seen, these I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. Now notice this, this statement also from the book Early Writings. As she sees the work of the third angel going forward in the earth, I want you to notice what happens. This is absolutely fascinating to me. The third angel closes his message thus. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Now, in vision, she's seeing the angel proclaiming the message. Watch what happens next. As he repeated these words, here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. As he repeated these words, he pointed where? To the heavenly sanctuary. Why? Listen to me. The three angels' messages are a warning message for the world. To get ready for what? The coming of Christ. But folks, a warning message is not what gets you ready. If you live down in one of those hurricane-hammered areas of the United States, and they have a warning that a hurricane is coming, the warning isn't getting you ready. It's telling you to get ready. The three angels' messages are telling us we need to get ready. Where do we go to get ready? We go to Jesus. And where is he? He's in the heavenly sanctuary finishing his atoning work. I mean, this is, this is what's happening. The angel, as he repeats the third angel's message, he's telling us, look, the warning against the mark of the beast isn't going to prepare us against the mark of the beast. It's the righteousness of Christ that prepares us against the mark of the beast. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As he repeated these words, he pointed to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus stands before the ark, making his final intercession for all those for whom mercy still lingers. This is why we're told in the book Great Controversy, page 488, all need a knowledge for who? <laughs> for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. So with that intro, by God's grace, the position and work of Christ in the sanctuary above is the burden of my message today, the finishing of the mystery of God. 
Now that phrase is actually taken from the book of Revelation where we're going to go in a moment. But it's interesting to me that, uh, I, I thought I had something here on the screen. After the disappointment of October 22, 1844, if you've read our history, the Lord directed the minds of our early Adventist pioneers, well, we, we were in the Adventist, the Advent movement, but he directed the minds of his followers to the prophecies. And it's interesting, some people who, you know, outside the Advent of faith, or they're questioning the Adventist faith, say, well, that's a likely story, right? Save face with the disappointment. It's so unfortunate today, I would have to say to such, in the words of Jesus, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. If you knew the Scriptures, you'd know that Jesus did the exact same thing with the disciples after his crucifixion. In fact, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were walking along, wondering, they were depressed and discouraged because Jesus was dead. He wasn't dead, and he showed up right there with him. You remember that in Luke chapter 24? And he said, why are you guys so down? I'm paraphrasing here. And they said, what, are you a stranger around here? Haven't you heard? And then he began to tell them about this wonderful Jesus. But they said, our religious leader has crucified him, and now it's the third day since all these things happened. I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking, you're, you're, you think, think of being Jesus there. Like, these were your followers, and they still didn't get it. How many times did you tell them, I'm going to rise again on the third day, I'm going to rise again? And this happens to be the third day since these things happened, they said. But the Bible says he hid himself from their eyes. In other words, he didn't reveal himself as Jesus. Go on. And, and, and as they explained to him, the Bible says Jesus began to give them what? A Bible study. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he began to expound to them all things in the Scripture concerning himself. Well, what were the things that Moses and the prophets said about Christ? There were prophecies about the work of Christ. And he gave them a Bible study on the prophecies. Jesus himself set the model because they misunderstood the prophecies. Well, the early Advent movement, the same thing happened. And the Lord gave our pioneers. But I, 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 as I was looking at this, I found this statement in great controversy concerning those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I thought it was important for us here. This is what uh, we're told in great controversy. It was needful for the followers of Christ to have what? An intelligent faith. Now, this goes on to explain it. Hang with me. To have an intelligent faith, not only in their own behalf, but that they might what? Carry the knowledge of Christ to the world. Now, this is what we're talking about with boldness, and this is why we're going through the stuff that we are here, because it, you can't share what you're, you don't know. You can't share what you're not passionate about. And it was important to Jesus that these disciples, I mean, he could have just said, hey, by the way, look, you guys don't need to be discouraged. Here I am. I'm Jesus. I'm raised from the dead. And they have an eyewitness testimony, and that's great, but he wanted them to have more. He wanted his disciples to have an intelligent faith. What does that mean in the context of the, of the road of, to Emmaus? They had to understand the Scriptures. He could have just told them, but he wanted them to see it in the Scriptures and to be able to explain it from the Scriptures. It was needful for them to have an intelligent faith, not only in their own behalf, but that they might carry the knowledge of Christ to the world. And as the very first step in imparting this knowledge, Jesus directed the disciples 
to Moses and all the prophets. Mm, what a powerful statement. And so he did with our, in fact, the next, uh, the, the statement goes on. Such was the testimony given by the risen Savior to the value and importance of, at that time, the only scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures. I met somebody here today and said, yeah, I got a friend, they do, they're Christian, they don't believe in the Old Testament. You know what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus when they didn't believe in the Old Testament? You know what he called them? He said, oh, you fools and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And then the Bible says, and then beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Jesus wanted us to see the value and importance of the scriptures. So with the early pioneers of the Advent movement. This is from the Review and Herald of June 23, 1921, after the disappointment a man named Hiram Edson was praying with some friends and asking the Lord to give them some kind of direction, some kind of light for what happened. And after their prayer session, he decided he would go and visit some of the other believers to try to encourage them, and he took a back way. <laughs> you can imagine, because of all the mockers, and said, oh, I thought you guys said Jesus was coming. And in that back way, on that back way, he, this is what he says happened. He said, heaven seemed open to my view. And I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to this earth on the 10th day of the seventh month, at the end of the 2300 days, he for the first time entered on that day into the second apartment of that sanctuary. And now notice what he said in my mind, was directed to the 10th chapter of Revelation. Take your Bibles to the 10th chapter. Now, I wish we could do a full-on study of the 10th chapter. We can't. I'm going to highlight some things because there are other things I want to cover this morning. But in Revelation chapter 10, if you've not studied Revelation chapter 10, I'll just tell you that Revelation chapter 10 foretells the rise of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And it's a powerful study. Uh, I, 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 again, I'll highlight a couple things here. In fact, hold your finger there because this will be important. You'll see why. Go back to Daniel 12 with me. Daniel chapter 12. We'll begin there in verse 1. Daniel 12, verse 1. Daniel 12, verse 1, the Bible says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as there never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to life, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, what? Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now notice verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank, and one said to the man clothed in linen, now notice the words here, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? 
Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people shall be, has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. And then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till when? The time of the end. The end of the time, times and half of the time. For those who have studied the 1260 years of prophecy that ended in 1798. Uh, again, that's a different study. But notice the visual here of this angel standing with both hands up to heaven, swearing by him who lives forever and ever, that the book is going to be sealed up until the time of the end, or time, times, and half a time. Now, when we come to Revelation 10, you'll see why that was significant, if you haven't studied this before. Daniel says, or John says, rather, in Revelation 10, verse 1, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. He was told not to write down the seven thunders in verse 4, verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to, ever, and, uh, to heaven rather, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So here he sees this angel who raises up what? A hand to heaven. And he swears by him who lives forever and ever. Did we just see that in Daniel? Sure we did. In Daniel, both hands were raised up to heaven. Why does this angel only have one hand raised to heaven? Because there's a book in his other hand. Try holding your hand up with a book in it. I mean, I suppose you could do it this way. So he's got a book in Now, what's significant about the book? It's open. But with the very same imagery, what was happening with the book in Daniel 12? It was sealed up. What we're seeing in Revelation 10 is the beginning of what's called the time of the end when that book of Daniel would be unsealed. And as you read on through chapter 10, you find that John is told to eat the book, which simply means from prophetic, and again, I can't do a study on this. I'm just being, you can see I'm being so tempted to just, let's go into Revelation 10. How long? Let's go till one o'clock today. We'll have a great study. Anyway, you're not going to do that. Um, but you see in, the, in the, the delineation of the chapter that John eats that book, that open book, that book of Daniel, which simply means to personalize and apply the prophecies of Daniel that he had a sweet experience when he tasted it, but it turned bitter, which is a perfect picture of what happened to the Advent movement who, when the time of the end came and they studied the prophecies of Daniel, they misinterpreted those prophecies. They thought Jesus was coming to the earth. He didn't come. It was sweet, but it turned bitter. 
But that didn't end the chapter because at the end of the chapter, the angel says, okay, now you've had that experience. Now you've got to go and tell the message again. This time you know what it means. Now that's my paraphrase there, but I'm zeroing in today on that verse 7. In the days of the sounding of the seventh angel. So the first thing is, it takes days. It's a period of time. When the angel sounds, there's something that's going to happen over a course of time under the seventh angel. And John calls that something the finishing of the mystery of God. So as our pioneers began to study, well, they were drawn to a study of the sanctuary and the type and the anti-type, which we're going to get to in a moment, but also this concept of the mystery of God. Now, I want to take you to just a few verses. I would encourage you to just do a word study in the New Testament on this concept of mystery. But we're going to go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. We're in the middle of Paul's sentence, but we're just we're wanting to look at, at this term mystery and how the... In fact, it's the Apostle Paul in every one of these verses. I'm going to look at three of them with you. Ephesians 6 verse 19. The apostle says, And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the what? Mystery of the gospel. So here the mystery is referred to as the gospel. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of Godliness, there's that mystery again, but here he calls it the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So here he's talking about what? The incarnation of Christ, which corresponds with what we read in Ephesians 6, 19, the mystery of the gospel, this mystery of God manifested in human flesh. And finally, Colossians 1.27. If you go back after the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. The Bible says here, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this what? Mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So the apostle calls the mystery the gospel in Galatia, or Ephesians 6.19. He refers to it in 1 Timothy as God manifested in human flesh in the person of Jesus. And then interestingly, as God manifested in human flesh, in our human flesh, in Colossians chapter 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the transforming work of the gospel. This is how our pioneers understood it as they studied this. I'm going to share it on the screen. J.N. Andrews, in his book, I, I put the judgment, it, this is a little book called The Judgment, Its Events, and Their Order. You want a good Bible study on the judgment? Get this book. It's not a huge book. It's a powerful book. And if you have the Ellen White app, it's in the Pioneer Writings portion for free. Jane Andrews said the mystery of God is therefore seen 
to be the work of salvation for fallen man through the gospel of Christ. That's pretty much what we just saw in Scripture, correct? Now, this is what I want you to begin thinking on. In Revelation, it says the mystery would be finished. So in other words, the, 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 the gospel work doesn't just go on and on and on and on and on forever. There comes a time, according to Scripture, when the work will be finished. Keep that in mind. Now, as our pioneers were looking at this and these passages on the mystery, and they saw, yes, mystery, the work of salvation for fallen man through the gospel of Christ. When looking back at Revelation 10, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets, in the context, in the context, the angel is holding a book open. Yes or no? And that book was the sealed book of Daniel. And so our pioneers understood that whatever this mystery of God is, it's got to be tied to the prophecies of Daniel that were sealed up, especially considering the 2300-day prophecy. Time doesn't permit us to show that not all of Daniel was sealed, but a portion of the prophecies of Daniel. Literally, in the, in the book of Revelation, it says a scroll in his hand. And so the pioneers of the Advent movement said this finishing of the mystery, this finishing of the work of the gospel has to tie to something that Daniel was talking about. And their conclusion was it must be talking about the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Jane Andrews goes on in that book, The Judgment, page 61, to say the investigative judgment. Now I've had people say, well, you Adventists have this idea of investigative judgment the word investigative isn't in the Bible. Folks, there's a lot of words Christian use that aren't in the Bible. Right? Trinity's not in the Bible. Um, Godhead is in the Bible, which is why some of the Adventists choose to use that. And don't get, Let's not get started on that. Um, millennium is not in the Bible. I should say the, the millennium is in the Bible, but the word millennium isn't in the Bible. I mean, you might find it in some translation, but in the mainline. So my point is, when some of the evidence said investigative, they understood that there was a phase of judgment that took place before Jesus came because Jesus is going to come with rewards, and before that, he's going to have to determine what the rewards are. And if you're familiar at all with a courtroom, as our pioneers were, you know that in a courtroom, before the final verdict is made, i.e., rewards are handed out, there's an investigation that takes place. You've got evidence presented from the prosecution and evidence presented from the defense, yes or no. And then the jury has to evaluate that. Now, if you don't want to call it investigating it, come up with whatever word you want to. But it doesn't take away the fact that there's an investigation that takes place. And so we chose in our church to call it the investigative judgment. You can call it the pre-advent judgment. That makes you feel better. And so I say, some of our opponents have said, well, this investigative word, well, the concept is clearly there in Scripture. The investigative judgment, this is what Dr. Andrews is talking about, the finishing of the work of human probation, the close of Christ's priesthood, and his coronation upon his own throne are events which transpire in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he begins to sound. That was their conclusion. This work of 
The finishing of the mystery had to do with the finishing of Christ's priestly intercession in heaven. Uriah Smith, in the book Synopsis of the Present Truth, says, the work in that apartment, second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary, is the cleansing of the sanctuary, the investigative judgment, the finishing of the mystery of God, which consequently commenced when the seventh angel began to sound. James White, in his book Life Incident, says, page 212, the finishing of the mystery of God is the completion of the great plan of salvation in connection with Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. I mean, look, how can, you, how can you talk about the completion of anything if you don't include what Jesus is doing right now at the time of completion? The work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is his final work in preparation to return to this earth. You, you, you can't leave it out. And so our pioneers made that connection. He continues, the seventh angel began to sound at the close of the 2300 days in 1844 when the cleansing of the sanctuary or the finishing of the mystery of God commenced. I'm sharing these things with you just to... <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who know what the finishing of the mystery of God is today. If I were just asking, I don't know. But every Seventh-day Adventist used to know. Go read the Bible readings for the home. There's a section in there on the finishing of the mystery of God. When you're singing... And I was hoping, um, by the way, I appreciate our song service. Mike was saying, I'm trying to pick songs that went with the presentations. And yesterday, on the 2,300 days, I thought it was going to be on the judgment. And so I picked songs on the judgment, and I messed up. I'm like, no, you didn't mess up. They're great songs. And today, on Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, uh, that was fantastic. Goes right along with what we're talking about. But yesterday, we sang Watch Ye Saints. And as we sing, watch ye saints, we sing. Oops, where's my slide? I'll just tell you, I've done a half slide on it. Haste, ere grace and time diminished, shall proclaim the mystery finished. We sing it, we talk about it, our pioneers knew it, but we, I think, in many ways have forgotten that this is the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is coming to a time where it will be finished. And that should really grab our attention. Because I'm going to tell you that when we no longer have a high priest interceding, you know, we talk about the close of probation, and I'm going to say this and get in trouble with somebody. But I hear Seventh-day Adventists talk about how, well, you know, probation closes earlier for Adventists than it does other people. Uh, no. The close of probation is because the priest finishes his work. That's why probation's closed. In other words, when there's no more priests, there's no more opportunity. And when Jesus finishes his work, he doesn't finish it for Adventists in one place and non-Adventists in another. Now, it can be true of any human being that you had opportunities, like Felix, and he said to the Apostle Paul, go your way and I'll call you again when a convenient season comes, and that season doesn't come. But I want you to be clear that the close of probation simply says that Jesus has finally finished his work as heavenly high priest, and he puts off his priestly garments, and he puts on his kingly garments in preparation to return to this earth. And we are in that time where he is about to put off the priestly garments. That's why I say this should have a, a, a it should be a, a wake-up call to all humanity. Haste, ere grace, and time diminished. Time is diminishing, it's going away, shall proclaim. Haste, we need to hurry, because time is ebbing away. And the Lord's coming is at hand. That's what we're singing. Watch ye saints. Now one final point, as our pioneers saw this in connection with the heavenly sanctuary, 
that this finishing of the mystery God was the finishing of the gospel work, they saw that finishing of the gospel work in two phases. Jan Andrews, again in his book on the judgment, says the finishing of the mystery of God is the accomplishment of the work of the gospel. This must have a twofold bearing. Number one, upon the priesthood of our Lord to bring it to a close by completing all its immense work. And number two, upon the what? Preaching of the gospel to the inhabitants of the earth and causing the proclamation of its final closing messages of warning. I think the second definition is what we would give. If we're like, well, what does it mean, the finishing of the mystery, the finishing? How's the gospel going to finish? I think a lot of the Christians, I know a lot of the Christians I've talked to, oh, it's going to finish by the preaching of the gospel. That's what it means. They're finishing up the preaching. But let me make something clear, saints. The purpose for the preaching of the gospel was to produce a people that were transformed by the gospel. And so it's not enough to just preach the gospel. A.T. Jones, one of our pioneers, said this. We can preach the gospel for a thousand years and the end will never come unless there's a people that's ready to meet Jesus when he comes. That's why the end of the gospel message in the three angels' messages, right? It begins with the everlasting gospel, says, here they are who keep the commandments of God. That's the end product of the work of the gospel. This is the finishing of the mystery, the work that Jesus is doing. So what is Jesus doing now? How do we know what he's doing now? More directly, more specifically. I showed you the other day the type and the anti-type. I told you again, if you were to get me a gift, it would not be this one. It would be this one. This is a model. This is a reality. And when we look at the earthly sanctuary, it was a model. And we're going to see that in Scripture in just a moment. That model was to show us things in the heavens we couldn't see because we're not there. And so this is what's absolutely amazing to me about the sanctuary. There's a lot of the pieces of the sanctuary. I don't want to say a lot. None of the sanctuary building itself have we ever had access to because it's in heaven. So God put a model on the earth so we could know what went on inside. Now, outside, we have the courtyard. We have the altar of burnt incense. That represents where the cross of Calvary was. We have that on the earth. But when Jesus ascended to heaven, the best way for us to figure that out is by looking at the type so we get an idea of what the anti-type looks like. Does that make sense? So we're going to go now to the book of Hebrews which is a fascinating book. I wish we could just do a full-on study, but we're going to chapter 10. I think, in fact, we're going to work a little bit in Hebrews chapter 10 and backtrack into Hebrews 9. And this is one of the clearest explanations of the work Jesus is doing now in the sanctuary above. Hebrews chapter 10. And he uses the type, the earthly model, to make his points, as you will see. Hebrews chapter 10 Got to go quickly. My time is running along. Hebrews 10, notice verse 1. The Bible says here, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of these things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more what? 
consciousness of sins. Now, I want you to understand, and we're going to see this. It's going to become very clear as we go through the chapter. But first thing, when it says the law having a shadow of things to come and not the very end of the things, some of, some of my Christian friends will say, well, the, you know, there, there it is, the Ten Commandment law. Well, it's not the Ten Commandment law. And how do we know that? The law can never with these same what? These same, look at your Bible, with these same sacrifices. Where does the Ten Commandments talk about sacrifices? Oh, it doesn't. It's talking about the ceremonial law, the law of sacrifices. This is what Paul's addressing. He's talking about the ceremonial service, that earthly service, that typical, that type service where they would bring in offerings. But what his point here right from the get-go is, is the offering can't really change the people. It can't make them perfect. It can't cleanse them from sin because if it did, they would have stopped coming to the sanctuary. Right? Look at verse 2 again. More, uh, in fact, 1 and 2. He says, uh, these, no, let's just zero in on verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Why? Because they're gone. But he says in verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So right off in his very beginning of his argument here, his point is there was a problem. Now, what's the title of the book that we're reading? Hebrews. Who's he writing to? The Hebrews. What are they doing still? Offering sacrifices. They haven't accepted Christ at large as a whole as people. So he's saying, listen, the sacrifices are not the end all. They were pointing forward to something. These same sacrifices, they can't cleanse you. You know that. Because if they could, once you went to the sanctuary and confessed your sins over the head of the animal and you went away, you'd never go again. Are you following that? The problem, he says, is exactly the opposite. There's a reminder every year. For the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Incidentally, the blood of bulls and goats was never intended to take away sin. It was intended to point us to the one who can't take away sin. Verse 5, he says, now... We're reading Paul, so it's going to get jumbly here. It's just how he's a theologian. You're going to have to hang with me. And we'll try to break it down. Therefore, when he, capital H, came into the world, he's talking about the incarnation of Christ, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now let me pause here. He's quoting from the Psalms, and he's quoting a Psalm where Jesus is talking to his father about coming to this earth. And he says, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said to his father, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do what? To do your will, O oh my God. Now, verse 8 gets, it's really clunky, 8 and 9, but we're going to read it a few times until you get it, and, and when you get it, it will be crystal clear. Now, he's, he says in verse 8, previously saying, so in other words, back in the Psalms where I'm quoting from, it said, sacrifice and offering, burn offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. 
which are offered according to the law, in the context, again, the sacrificial law, previously saying this, verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the what? The first, that he may establish the second. Now, I want to zero in on that little piece. What's the apostle saying? He takes, talking about God the Father now, sending his son, he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. What was the first in the context? The bringing sacrifices and offerings. What is that contrasted with? The doing of God's will. He, 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 you know, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. I mean, let's think this through. God didn't want a bunch of bulls and goats' blood. He wanted his people to obey him. Yes or no? He wanted them transformed. He wanted people who would do his will from the heart. So this is exactly what the apostle's saying. First he says, look, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't fix the problem. But here's what happened. God's son came. And when he came, he said, Lo, it is written in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will. Sacrifice and offering wasn't what you wanted, Father. You wanted people to do your will. And so I came, and I demonstrated the doing of your will. And he says he takes away the first, the sacrifice and offering, Right? Jesus was crucified on the cross. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. God's trying to say to us, that's not. And listen, let's be clear. We don't have to sacrifice lambs and, and bulls and goats. But sometimes we do the same thing by sacrificing, you know, some convenience or something. I mean, there are things that we give up to follow the Lord. But that giving up should be for the purpose of doing the will of God. Unfortunately, sometimes we give up in place of doing the will of God. So, for example, in Matthew 23, Jesus told the Pharisees, you tithe the anise and the mint and the cumin, but you avoid the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. Right? So, so what they were doing is they had these little herbs and they would just go overboard on their obedience there to make up for their disobedience over here. God doesn't, it's better in, in first, uh, Samuel 15, the Lord said it's better to obey than to sacrifice. I mean, this theme is throughout Scripture, like God says, I, I want you to obey me. And so the purpose of salvation was to accomplish that, that was taught in the sanctuary system, but it couldn't be accomplished by the blood of bulls and goats. So he says, again in, in verse um, 9, we'll pick up there. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second, which is the will of God. I say that because when you go to verse 10, it makes more sense. By that will, at doing the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which, what? Can never take away sins. But this man, I love the contrast there, but if we had to end with could never take away sins, then we die in our sins. But it says... But this man, 
after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made a footstool. Now I'm looking at my time, but I I can't pass this up. Because the the imagery here doesn't, for many of us, like the enemies made the footstool. It almost sounds like the Lord's just going to trample on his enemies. But the idea of taking your enemies, unless I need to introduce something here. Because when we think the enemies, we always think somebody else. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, every human being has been the enemy of God. God hasn't been fighting us, brothers and sisters. We've been fighting him, fighting his will. We want to do our own will. And so when it talks about making the enemies the footstool, it's talking about making them subject. The purpose of the gospel is to take those who are fighting against God and make them subject to God. And so the the idea of Jesus sitting on the right hand, this really is referring to his priestly work where he's going to work to make the enemies of God the subjects of the kingdom of God. Whoever will choose to be. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And in verse 14 is just an incredible verse. For by one offering, right? How many offerings in the earthly temple? Constant. How much good did they do? Well, they were teaching lesson, but unless they took the lesson and laid hold of the righteousness of Christ, they did nothing. But Christ by one offering, and that's Paul's point in the contrast, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are what? Being sanctified. The language here is incredible. So perfected forever, what tense is that in? It's like it's done. It's it's almost past, present, accomplished. He's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. What tense is that? Being, I'm going through a process. It's not done yet. So one thing is done and the other thing's not done. And what Paul's trying to say is, Jesus in himself showed the goal, the end goal of humanity. That's why Jesus took humanity, the end goal of God for you and me. It's done. It's been finished in the person of Christ. And now by virtue of his priesthood, he's applying that to you and me. And so as we're going through the sanctification process of being sanctified, we can have confidence in the fact that Jesus is going to finish what he started. That's the apostle's whole point. In fact, I'm going to come back to this. Uh, we're, we're, We're going to transition and come back. But I want you to see that as Paul describes, now not the earthly temple, but the heavenly temple, what he's simply telling us is the work of Jesus right now is getting rid of sin in the lives of the followers of God. It's what the earthly temple could never do. Now, I'm, uh, you can argue it all day long, but there's nowhere else you can go with what Paul's saying here. Like, he's very clear, like, this couldn't do this, but this does. This was impossible. The blood, of, it couldn't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. The contrast is, Jesus can cleanse the conscience. Well, why does the conscience bother us? Because we did something wrong. How do you fix that? There's two ways that I know of. One is you can sear your conscience, according to the Bible, so you don't hear the voice of conscience anymore. I don't think that's what God's trying to do for us, right? Which leaves us the only other option, that is, you stop sinning. You stop sinning the conscience of you. You say, well, how in the world is that possible? It's not, except through Christ. 
And we're going to see that as we go on. Now, I want you to understand some of the bigger, bigger implications here. If you go with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, and we look at the Day of Atonement, which is the type that's describing what Jesus was doing right now that we're reading in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 is the antitype of the Day of Atonement. And if you look at Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement chapter. And I just want to zero in on one aspect of the Day of Atonement, and that is what is cleansed on the Day of Atonement. We're going to Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to look at verse 33. Let's start in verse 30. Leviticus 16, verse 30 says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse what? You, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. We're we're looking at that in Hebrews. That's what we're looking at. The, The reality, not just the type. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes and the holy garments. And notice verse 33. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now my question to you is, there were two things cleansed on the Day of Atonement primarily. What were they? Okay, I heard it. The people and the building. I don't know if anybody's processed through this. I'm sure some of you have. Like, okay, when we talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary and the cleansing of the people from sin, isn't that kind of the point? So what in the world, like, why beyond that do you have to atone for the building? But you remember, perhaps, on Tuesday, how we said that when the sinner came to the sanctuary and they confessed their sin, the sin was transferred to the sanctuary. And do you remember what we said was happening there? God was bearing the responsibility for sin. I told you that in a great controversy, the devil has been maligning God's character from the beginning. It's not just you and me being sinners. It's God's fault because God started it by making that law nobody could keep. And so, let me rephrase that. I saw some puzzled looks. I don't believe that. That's the devil's lie. That it's because of the Ten Commandments. In fact, I have it on the screen here. Let's look at it. I showed it the other day. Um, I do. It's coming up, but I'm going to get to it in a minute. Let me just say that again, and we'll, we'll get to it. That the devil accused God from the beginning and said it was his law that created the problems in the universe. My point is this. The cleansing of the sanctuary is, is not, the cleansing of God's people is not simply for the purpose of our personal salvation. It's got to show the goodness and the glory of God. It's got to clear God's name in the great controversy. Now, I have on the screen the reproach of Egypt. In the book, in fact, take your Bibles with me, just looking at my time, but I want to look at this in Scripture. You perhaps have read the story in Joshua, but we're going to Joshua chapter 5. This is a fascinating story. And there are more that could be given, but in Joshua chapter 5, The children of Israel have finally come into the promised land. 
And when they come into the promised land, the Lord orders Joshua to have the ones who were born in the wilderness circumcised. Look at verse 4. Joshua 5, verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt were males. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So the Lord said, now it's time to circumcise them. And you're like, what in the world does this have to do with anything? I want you to go to verse 8. The Bible says, so it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then Joshua, then the Lord said to Joshua, this day, I have rolled away the what? The reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means rolling away. I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, what in the world is that talking about? I want you to turn with me. I want you to turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 14. We're going to look at two verses here, and we're going to tie this all together. Numbers 14, and we're going to verse 13. Numbers 14, verse 13, And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it. This is in the, in the wake of the uh, unfaithful spies. And the children of Israel not going into the land. And Moses' concern is this. Then the Egyptians will hear it, for your, by your might you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill these people as one man, and the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was what? Not able to bring this people into the land for which he swore to give them. Therefore he killed them in the wilderness. The Egyptians will say, ah, he could take them out of Egypt, but he couldn't get them into the promised land. And it left a reproach upon the name of God. And so when they finally went in to the promised land by the might and power of God, he said, Moses circumcised the ones born in the wilderness as a testimony. Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt, and I've shown and proven that I could bring my people into the land. Now go again to Deuteronomy 9, just to see one more place. Deuteronomy 9, verse 28. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 28. Back, let's go to verse 27, because we're in the middle of a, of a thought here. It says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us should say, because the Lord was what? Not able to bring them to the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. So the Lord wanted to make sure that that reproach was rolled away from his name 
but the only way he could do it was bringing his people into the promised land. Now hang on. But we're told in the signs of the times, June 5, Lucifer took the position that as a result of the law of God, wrong existed in heaven and on this earth. That was his claim. It was the law's fault, and it's proven because if you look at humanity and the mess they are, it's obvious they can't keep the law of God, and God was wrong in the whole thing. Desire of Ages 7.61 says, In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. That was his claim. So what did God do? God sent his son. Romans 8, 4, we looked at it the other day. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I mean, listen, saints, we're talking about cleansing from sin. What are we talking about but making us obedient people? You know, it's, it's not a vacuum. It's like if you're, if you're not sinning, it's because you're obeying God. If you're obeying God, you're not sinning. And so we're looking at the sanctuary and Jesus, according to Hebrews 10, putting away the sin of the people. That's why the will of God is tied in there. What it's saying is his work in the sanctuary is to bring his people into perfect harmony with the law of God, to, to by his grace, enable us to obey the law of God and roll away the reproach, not of Egypt, but the reproach of the devil. Look at it on the screen. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 136. The only begotten Son of God came to our world as a man to reveal to the world that men could what? Keep the law of God. Satan, the fallen angel, had declared that no man could keep the law of God after the disobedience of Adam. Well, that's true in part without the grace of God. But God sent his Son to change the order of things. And thus, it says, the devil claimed the whole race under his control. But praise God we're not under his control because of Jesus Christ. Again, Testimonies, Volume 8, page 207. Christ came to vindicate the sacred claims of the law. He came to live a life of obedience to its requirements and thus what? Prove the falsity of the charge made by Satan that it is impossible for man to keep the law of God. He had to disprove it. I mean, I want you to see that we're, this is a bigger, broader theme than just my personal salvation. That Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' heavenly work, is to get rid of the sin problem once for all, to refute the arguments of Lucifer in the great controversy, to roll away the reproach from God's holy name. It continues in the statement to say his life, Jesus' life, testifies that it is possible for us also to obey the law of God. Now, I, when, when I talk about these things, people say, this is overwhelming, though. I mean, I look at my own life. There, there's no way. Listen to me carefully. What we're looking at in this whole theme of present truth is not your work. It's Christ's work. It's what he's telling us he's going to do for me and you. Do we believe he can do it? Now, what's fascinating is we read about the reproach of Egypt. We're looking at the fact that the Israelites, God didn't take them all into the land, did he? The ones who he did take in the land were the means of rolling away that reproach. He proved he could do it. 
But he didn't prove that with all the Israelites, did he? Go with me to Romans chapter 3. And there's a fascinating verse here that we need to take to heart. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans 3. And Paul speaks just to this point. In chapter 2, he's already talked about how many of the Israelites had no faith in God. Romans 3, verse 1, he says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Now, now I want you to understand the context. There are Israelites who never made it into the land of Canaan because of their unbelief. And there are Israelites today in captivity to Rome, as Paul's writing to them. And they're thinking, well, the promises of God have failed. And Paul's trying to make the point, the promises didn't fail. The only failure is God's people to believe. Now look what he says. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. King James says, God forbid indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. There are people in the Seventh-day Adventist church today who hesitate and falter at believing that God can take them into the heavenly Canaan, that Jesus can actually cleanse their sin here and now. So I don't understand how he can do it. Let me give you a practical example. This little air cast I'm wearing. Some of the folks here were in Ohio. I preached in a church over the weekend a, a few days after I had my accident. And I was in, I, actually, Brendan Matson, a friend at work, praise the Lord for Brendan, offered me uh, to use something he had, calls a knee crutch. And some of you may have seen me on it. Actually, it's kind of freaky because it's like a peg leg when you, you rest your knee because I couldn't put weight on my foot at all. So you rest your knee in it like this and you strap your leg in. And from the front, it looks like you're an amputee, Right? And so people are like, what do you do? And it's like, you know, I have this. But it, it allowed me to get around a little bit more. But I was preaching on a knee crutch two weeks ago. Now, I'm walking. In fact, I walked last night. It was a little painful, but I walked with my wife for two miles because my, my ankle is healing, my broken ankle. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have no way to explain it. Okay? I can't explain to you. And I'm going to challenge you, even if you are in the medical field, there are things you can explain, but you can't explain every detail of how a person who was injured is slowly able to recovery. We just call it the healing process. And it's happening. Brothers and sisters, if you have faith in Jesus, the healing process is happening for you right now. And you're going to be tempted to say, oh, but I don't know, I don't feel it. Like, I woke up this morning and it hurt. Trust the Lord Jesus. Let God be true and every man a liar. The Lord is in, listen, this is the fascinating thing when you understand this aspect of what Jesus is doing. That not only is Jesus trying to save you and me, he's got to roll away the reproach from the devil. Then think about this for a minute. Then the judgment, it actually is to God's advantage to save us. I mean, think about it. If he's trying to prove the devil wrong, it's like, yeah, I couldn't save any of them. They're all, I'm wiping them all out. That doesn't help him out, does it? Not to say that God's trying to help himself out, but my point is, the Bible says in Daniel that judgment was made in favor of the saints. 
A judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Do you believe the word of God this morning? By faith in Jesus, we'll be there. But we direct our attention where? Right now, the work he's doing is for you and me to be successful in the Christian life. I don't know how he's going to do it. I can't explain it, but I believe it. I believe in the power of Christ. And that's where the direction, that's the direction that our pioneers were pointed to, to the work of Jesus in preparing the world for his soon coming. It is to God's advantage to save us. And so I want to return briefly to Hebrews 10. It's in light of what we're talking about, that Paul had his confidence, and he shares that confidence with you and me. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to pick up here in verse 19. Again, this context is the fact that we no longer are depending on blood of bulls and goats. We now have a heavenly high priest by virtue of whose sacrifice he can take away sins. And so Paul tells us in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having what? Having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us do what? Let us draw near, how? With a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Is Jesus faithful? Oh, you better believe it. Now, I, I, can't, I, I want to share with you one more quote. It has absolutely become one of my favorite quotes in um, the writings of Ellen White. But did you know that as Jesus is ministering as a priest before his father, he's asking, you know, the priest represented the people of Israel. That's, that's why Jesus, again, took humanity. He's there representing humanity. He's the only human being that ever did it right. And now he's there in the presence of the father trying to claim that for all humanity. And he's in the presence of his father asking for something for you and me. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus gets what he asks his father for? Wouldn't you like to know what he's asking? You know we do know what he's asking? Now, check this out. Great controversy. Oh, it's incredible. Satan, in his efforts to deceive and tempt our race, had thought to frustrate the divine plan in man's creation. He thought he messed the whole thing up. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the Lord's like, oh, well, I guess he got me on that one. I'm going to have to move on. Oh, no, no, the Lord's like, he's not going to take this one from me. These are my people. Satan thought he was going to frustrate God's plan. But Christ now asks that this plan be carried into effect as if man had never fallen. I mean, let that settle in. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, Jesus says, Father, I want you to treat them as if they'd never done anything wrong. It's a prayer the Father is all too eager to answer. We're not done yet, by the way. He asked for his people not only pardon and justification, full and complete. I mean, I'd be happy with that. Not only that, but he asks a share in his glory and a seat upon his throne. All glory to God, brothers and sisters. 
Jesus is working for you and me at this very moment. And he who promised is faithful. You believe in the faithfulness of Jesus? Don't waver in your confidence. Don't look at your weakness. Look to the strength of Christ. And brothers and sisters, Jesus will do for you and me what he promised. And let us take that news of of, of what Christ has done for us to others who need to know Christ. And one day, all one day very soon, by the grace of God, may we be able to cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Is that your desire this morning? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what precious promises you've given us. What a blessed hope in the work of Jesus right now in our behalf. Something that I fear we've not taken to heart like we should. What the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do, Jesus is more than capable of doing. And he's doing it right now. Right now we have an advocate. Right now we have an intercessor. Right now at this very moment, we have Jesus who ever lives to make intercession. And Father, I pray that you would just help us by faith to hang on to your promises believing that he who promised is faithful. And also, Lord, as prayed by David, restore unto us this joy of salvation so that we may teach transgressors your ways and they too would be ready to meet Jesus when he comes. I pray, Lord, you would bless us here in the remainder of our camp meeting. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.